Hey, what's up? This is Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast, and this week it's part two of our series on Nissan, our conclusion of the Nissan story. We're talking about all the iconic Nissan sports cars in this episode. I'm talking Z car. How'd that even come to be? It turns out the guy responsible for it developed it in secret and then had to act surprised when the engineers showed it off for the rest of the company leadership. Very funny. Uh, and then, of course, Skyline GTR, Datsun 510, a little car called Godzilla. They're all in this episode. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's part two of Nissan Bypassed Gas by Donut Media. Listen today. Tony Stewart was about to run his first Indy 500. It should have been the best day of his life. He was handpicked by the head of the race to be Open Wheel Racing's next star, and this was the sport's premier event. But he wasn't supposed to be the only star in the game. On May 26, 1996, Stewart had the entire Indianapolis 500 riding on his shoulders. The race was happening as usual, but his veteran teammate and mentor had been killed during practice earlier that week. To make things worse, none of the other star drivers or teams from the sport of IndyCar were even in the state. They'd all been locked out of Indy by the owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So they were at a slapdash event in Michigan that had been scheduled for the same day called the US 500. As Stewart later put it, that's the closest I've ever been to throwing up before a race. That fateful day is now known in racing lore as part of the split. But how did open wheel racing get to that point? What exactly is the difference between kart and IndyCar and champ car and all the other names we call this sport? Why does it always seem to be in turmoil? Today on Pass Gas, it's a brief history of the many dramatic twists and turns in the world of IndyCar. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about sports. Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. This is not a sprint racing, sprint car show. This is a uh, automotive history podcast. This week we are talking about Champ Car, Indy Car, Cart Car, Car Car, <laughs> Tomater, Tomater, all the different names. Uh, we're going to be talking about Indy Car's history right now. Um, definitely a very tumultuous time or tumultuous story, really, uh, of this organization. Um, you know, we this is a topic that we've mentioned a few times, the split. So I'm very happy to finally uh, explore this topic in more detail. I actually know little about it. As far as I, as much as I love Formula One, I when it comes to IndyCar racing, the America's Open Wheel uh, Racing Series, I'm pretty ignorant. So I'm very excited to learn about this with you guys today. My co-hosts, uh, I'm joined. I'm joined by my co-host today. My name, sorry, my name is Nolan Sykes. Uh, I'm joined by Diamond Joe Weber. I'm as ignorant as they come. <laughs> and Jeremiah Burton. <laughs> I mean, how can I respond to something that gold? That was just gold, baby. <laughs> That's gold, baby. Is a really good catch. <laughs> oh, That's, gold, That's gold, baby. That's gold, baby. I let you do the work. <laughs> Jeremiah has a new bit where yes. he'll go to shake your hand, and then you shake his hand. <laughs> Total limp. It's very funny. You do a total limp handshake. I want to spread this across the nation, you know, because I was taught as a kid, firm handshake, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, there's something really funny about when you go in, another person goes in and you just give them the old limp, limp noodle and then look and at them in the face. And you just go along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. 
What is it about the firm? I mean, I guess I get the firm handshake. It's a show of strength. It's a show of right. uh, you're a formidable force, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Uh, you're, you're a man of stalwart mm-hmm. conviction. Yeah, sure. Because you hear boomers say like, oh, this generation don't even have strong handshakes. It's like yeah. we don't, we're not all machinists like you were. <laughs> like we don't, we're not hard labor people anymore. I don't think it matters as much. Yeah, my buddy Cody, his dad has the strongest hand. He will try to, he will literally try to break your hand. But look, yeah. I hate that. I hate that because the history of the handshake is to show that you don't have any weapons and you're not coming with aggression. Interesting. Oh, I and didn't know that was on its head. The yeah, and you shake yeah. with the right hand because you wipe your butt with the left hand. Yeah. I mean, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, I wipe my butt with... It was for, it was your hand would go to their elbows at first, right? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, because like, oh, that makes sense. Check yeah. your sleeves. Yeah. 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 Check your sleeves yeah. and stuff Because like you that. don't it's wipe your butt with your will. elbow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Speak for yourself, my man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a show of goodwill. I haven't really noticed like people our age doing that sort of thing. No, yeah. it doesn't happen oh, at all. You know who does? Dylan from Heatwave. Dylan from Heatwave. Oh, yeah. This is what started this. Yeah. Oh, really? This is what started this whole thing because we were talking about strong hand grips. I was like, yo, Dylan's got a... He's got a machinist handshake. Dude, shit. he's got meat well, paws. Well, dude, I mean, yeah. that guy is like 6'4", yoked. Yeah. He yeah. probably ran kids over in high school. was probably fullback <laughs> in high school. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You know what's really Metro? Just kissing someone on the lips. Yeah. Very Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah. I went to a wedding a couple weeks ago, and I've been telling my new girlfriend about all my cool friends. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I was like, they're really cool. You're going to love them. And... We, we all saw each other at the wedding. First thing Matt Cordova does, kiss me on the lips. Nice. And, and then she was like, after the wedding, she was like, I really like Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Matt's cool. Yeah, yeah. He's awesome. That's hilarious, dude. I'm going next summer. My girlfriend's friend is getting married in Monaco. Whoa. Yeah. Dude, that's So we're going to be going out there. That's super cool. Yeah, but I just realized, like... Do they do the 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 side the cheek peck thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The well, one kiss is like for pe- for an acquaintance that you kind of oh. know. Two kisses is for someone that you know gotcha. for a long time. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And tongue is for your mama. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we have to. I don't know. Start practicing that. I guess. Anyway, enough babbling. <laughs> the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was constructed in 1909. Just the second banked oval track built specifically for auto racing. Do you know what the first one was? I'm guessing you know. I don't actually. Daytona? Uh, no way no. Daytona was built no, in 1909. That was a stupid it guess. It's probably one of those wooden, <laughs> it's probably like one of, one of those wooden like motorcycle tracks. Our producer's telling it's us. It's a Milwaukee Mile? Milwaukee Mile. Shout out to Milwaukee. That makes oh. sense because Harley was there and they were the king oh, of flat tracks. Okay. Whoa. That's, That's cool. True. Well, they would, like, take old horse tracks and start turning them into board track racing. Because board track racing back in the day was, like, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, people died. You fall off and you get splinters. There were four of them here in in L.A. There's one in Beverly Hills. There's Uh one in Mar Vista. uh, I assume there's probably one in Orange County. One in Culver City, maybe, too. Maybe, yeah. Miracle Mile area. Yes, it was Culver City. Yeah. Yeah. The one in Beverly Hills was... um, Literally down the. Do you know Bruce Meyer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We all were there, right? Yeah. We went to Bruce Meyer's secret uh, garage off of Rodeo Drive. Yeah. And he's got this picture of Beverly Hills uh, and like where current things are, like where the current roads are, yeah. and the huge. It's a massive racetrack. It was insanely it was. big. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's all wood. 
wild. Where the bathrooms were are now where Elon Musk lives. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, the idea for Indianapolis Motor Speedway came from a guy named Carl G. Fisher, a prolific businessman whose notable exploits included operating America's first car dealership, spearheading the Lincoln Highway, developing Miami Beach, being super racist, <laughs> and marrying a 15-year-old while he was 35 and engaged to oh another woman. No, I'm still going to marry you. Just uh, <laughs> give me like a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, Carl Fisher wasn't a super great guy, but he was incredibly rich on account of his first business selling acetylene-powered headlights to early auto manufacturers. This eventually led to him opening a showroom selling the vehicles themselves. He concluded from this experience that if builders of these cars had a place where they could test their products at high speeds and over long distances, they would create better quality cars. So he decided to build a racetrack and rent the facilities to automakers. Fisher was also a racing fan and an occasional participant who thought that spectators didn't get their money's worth in street races since they only got a brief glimpse of cars speeding down a linear road. Like the races we talked about earlier, uh, not earlier in this episode, but, you know, like the Mila Miglia over in Italy or, like, yeah. the your traditional style, like, I guess rallies is what you'd call you them. You just get one shot at the cars. Yeah, you're just like, mm -hmm. exactly. So Carl intended to host races at his new Speedway. And that's in quotes because that's probably one of the first ones there was. Mm -hmm. Fisher declared, quote, Indianapolis is going to be the world's greatest center of horseless carriage manufacturers. What could be more logical than building the world's greatest racetrack right here in Indianapolis? <laughs> the first public event at the Speedway didn't involve cars at all. It was a balloon race. <laughs> <laughs> what? A balloon race? <laughs> hey, you got to know how to ride the wind, man. Hey, let's build this track to test cars. But let's first have a balloon race. Yeah. <laughs> The first long-distance car race didn't happen until several months after opening. It was 100 laps long, and the winner was awarded the Presto Light Trophy, sponsored by Fisher's Headlight Company. Convenient. I wonder if that trophy's still around. It's probably in someone's attic. Unfortunately, the track's original surface proved entirely unsuitable. It was made of graded soil covered in a combination of creek gravel, two inches of crushed limestone, pteroid, a.k.a. liquid coal tar, uh, crushed stone, and larger stones, which were supposed to provide a solid base. Race leader Louis Chevrolet, who later co-founded the car company Chevrolet, was temporarily blinded when a loose stone smashed his goggles. Ugh. Another driver, Wilfred Burke, and his mechanic, Harry Holcomb, both died in a crash. But in a tale as old as time, Racing continued throughout the weekend, and two days after the first race, two spectators and another mechanic were killed when a car careened through a fence. Despite the flurry of tragedy, Fisher was encouraged by the 15,000 or so fans who had paid $1 to view the weekend's races. He and his partners began looking into the idea of paving the track with bricks or concrete. Very few roads were paved in 1909, so there was little knowledge of what would work best. Fisher eventually chose bricks because traction tests proved they could hold up. More than 3 million bricks were laid at the track, including the final, supposedly silver, brick. Locals started referring to the track as the Brickyard, and the nickname stuck. Mm. That'd be a good nickname for someone. Probably uh, Dylan. He's yeah. a brick. Yard. Yard. <laughs> 
He's a brickyard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Pacino, for stopping by. Thank you. <laughs> Come to the brickyard this Sunday. We're having balloons. <laughs> I know. I, to be honest, this is all fascinating, but I want to know more about this balloon racer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, like a guy getting mad at another balloon racer? Like, you cut me off, man. <laughs> you know? Someone, like, slipstreaming in a balloon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we we're on to something. Bring back balloon racing. Yeah. <laughs> I think those balloons probably get cooking pretty fast. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you get an, in a stream of wind, yeah, that thing's probably moving. Yeah, but they're very dangerous, right? Because you kind of just go where the wind yeah, takes you. Yeah, you gotta, you need an uh, an experience. You kind of just balloonist. have up and down controls, right? Yeah. So if you get caught in a wind, you got to either get out of it by going up or down. There's got to be some YouTube video. Dude, we got to do fast something with balloons. Can a balloon go? Because like, what you get in a fifty mile. An hour win. Yeah. You're ripping. Anyway, over the next two years, the Speedway ran multiple races on every major holiday weekend. But Fisher found that crowds grew progressively smaller over a long summer racing season. So, in 1911, Fisher decided that what his track needed instead was a capital E event. Much of Fisher's early business success was thanks to huge publicity stunts, so he initially considered running a 1,000-mile race or a 24-hour contest in the style of Le Mans, but he eventually decided on 500 miles, the longest estimated distance a race could be run before night fell on the track. The first Indy 500 was run on May 30th, 1911, Decoration Day, as Memorial Day was known back then. It was the original 500-mile race and is also thought to be the first use of a rolling start in an auto race. That's pretty interesting. To draw the country's top racers, Fisher promised an enormous $25,000 purse, about seven hundred fifty grand in today's money. Yeah, that's a lot of scratch. <laughs> More than 80,000 spectators turned out to see 37 drivers compete. I think... The rolling start makes sense because cars back then probably had like a 35 second zero to 60. <laughs> yeah, so the yeah. beginning of the race would be so uneventful. Yeah. <laughs> and they're off. <laughs> the balloon is beating them. <laughs> the huge stakes and paved track almost immediately made Indy into America's premier auto event. Over the next decade, crowds grew as cars got smaller, lighter, more efficient, and more expensive. By the mid-1920s, the Indy 500 had basically become what it is today, a high-paying event featuring the world's most expensive cars. From 1911 to 1955, the Indy 500 was organized by the AAA Contest Board, which is the motorsports arm of the American Automobile Association, who sanctioned most early major American races. The board was originally founded in 1904, just three months after the AAA itself. In fact, AAA's boycott of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway after its deadly first weekend was one of the things that spurred Carl Fisher to lay down a brick track. Hmm. The AAA years were key for the development of the American Championship as well as the championship car, as open-wheel racers were officially known. Hmm. This was informally shortened to Champ Car, which is what most fans and participants called it during okay, this period. Okay, interesting. Things are uh, percolating. making sense now. <laughs> the end. <of laughs> the end of the AAA contest board was the original seed for much of the racing drama that followed over the next seventy years. 
1955, the board suddenly disbanded in response to a disaster at Le Mans that killed 83 spectators. We've talked about this Mm -hmm. a couple episodes. Tragic. And the death of two-time Indy 500 winner Bill Vukovic in that year's race. In one swift decision, the burgeoning American racing scene had no sanctioning body. Oh, I had no idea about AAA. Is it the same AAA that I call when I break down? Yeah, American it was the motorsports arm of the American Automobile Association. Very interesting. And now I pay them 40 bucks a year. In the event, if I break down, I get a tow. I yeah. got to re-up my membership. I've let it lapse. I mm-hmm. just got gifted a platinum Platinum 200 mile tow range. Whoa! uh, AAA membership. That's it's part of the deal with selling my Z. Whoa! Cool. Yeah, that's the guy gifted you that. Yeah, because (laughs) he lives in the Central Coast, Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to come down to get the Z, so he like put me on his membership, had it towed (laughs) four hours up to Napomo, California. Pretty good deal. Tow companies love that. <laughs> <laughs> I I was like very upfront with the dude. I was like, "There's a fatty tip waiting for you in the yeah. Como." He was pretty psyched. Plus, like as a tow driver, yeah, I think I would rather do that than go r- drive around in traffic all day. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The disarray in championship racing was something of a boon for the early days of NASCAR, which had been established just seven years earlier. At this point, racing was still mostly a regional sport. NASCAR was formed by Bill France out of Daytona Beach in partnership with other racing promoters in the South. Most notably, a group of former bootleggers out of Atlanta, which we talked about in a former episode Mm -hmm. too. France had initially brought his proposal for a stock car circuit to AAA, which rejected it out of safety concerns and or the visible class divide between the worldly gentleman racers who own champ cars and the backwood hicks who own stock cars. Well, it's, I mean, again, it's the regionality still. Like, this is a northern sport indie, or champ car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Versus the south, you know. Champ car. Champ car. When is NASCAR entering in this scene? It's much later, though. It's I think 47, I think, is like, when they started, or were official. Yeah, because it was Prohibition, running booze. That's the, you know, genesis of NASCAR. So that's much, well, no, fuck, that's the 20s. 48? Okay. That was when it became official, though, but they had been doing unofficial races right. for at least 10, 15 years before that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah, early 50s. So it's also a later start, and, yeah, like Nolan's saying, regionally different and kind of different. Like, NASCAR was born out of being like, hey, we got these fast cars that we use to <laughs> run liquor. Yeah. What are we going to do with them? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm better at running the legal booze than you yeah. are. No, no, you're not. Well, let's race, you know. Where's your pink? Let's do it. Yeah. Regardless, thanks to that early rejection, NASCAR was unaffected by the demise of AAA and used this era to establish racing primacy in the American South, which, in retrospect, may have been the beginning of IndyCar's collapse. Ooh, laying the dominoes. The dominoes aren't falling, but they're being laid out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But stacked up. They're being stacked up. Yeah. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find 
people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In 1955, Indianapolis Motor Speedway owner Tony Holman stepped in to fill the sudden leadership void left by AAA in open-wheel racing. Holman was an Indiana-area businessman who had made his fortune selling Clabber Girl baking powder. Dude, I got some of that in my pantry right now. Clabber Girl never fails on baking day. I let you do the work. <laughs> <laughs> in 1945, with the help of three-time Indy 500 winner Wilbur Shaw, Holman bought the track in a shuttered, dilapidated state after four years of neglect during World War II and restored it to its former glory. When Shaw died in a plane crash in 1954, Holman stepped into his role as the face of the Speedway. When the AAA board withdrew from racing, both the SCCA and NASCAR were in contention to be potential successors. Uh, the SCCA is Sports Car Club of America. But about six months later, Holman and other Midwestern race promoters formed a temporary emergency committee to replace AAA. That committee turned into the United States Auto Club, or USAC, the new organizing body for championship auto racing. USAC exclusively sanctioned the Indy 500 as well as the American Championship from 1955 until 1978. The FIA also recognized it as the American authority in open-wheel racing during this period. For a while, championship racing grew in popularity as the circuit stabilized. Champ cars? Champ cars. Yeah. Championship cars, champ car. USAC was essentially controlled by Holman and the same team that ran the Indy 500, so there was little internal strife. On the track, races were split into two disciplines, paved oval and dirt oval. In the 50s, front-engine roadsters began to dominate paved tracks at higher speeds, while the old-style upright dirt cars still ran on dirt tracks. The 60s saw an influx of European drivers and team owners with road racing backgrounds, and the cars transformed again into mid-engine, formula-style racers. Fans liked that the cars were getting faster, but they were also getting more expensive to own, which made some of the longest-standing team owners a little uneasy. Then, in 1971, USAC moved dirt tracks onto an entirely different circuit from the Indy 500, which infuriated the small owners. They felt they were getting squeezed out in favor of newer teams with road racing backgrounds like Penske, Patrick, Gurney, and McLaren. So they kicked the old dirt boys out. Kicked them dirty boys out. Or like, the hey, new dirt boys. Get them rich boys in. I don't it, understand though. Did they are there different are they were they racing on the same tracks that they laid dirt on? I, I don't know what that means. No, no, like 
there's dirt tracks and there's paved tracks. Are you saying entirely different circuit, meaning it, yes. like, hey, you have different schedules with yes. different races on different days yes, yes, or something? Yes. Okay, so it's yes. not like a combined week no, event no. or weekend event where no. it's everything. Different schedules. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for, yeah. In response, USAC tried to level the playing field by restricting boost and implementing other restrictions on the faster cars. This frustrated the newer team owners, led by Dan Gurney. Prior to his tenure as champ car owner, Gurney was the first man to win races in the world's four major racing classifications, Formula One, IndyCar or Champ Car, Sports Cars, and NASCAR. But he felt owners had little or no control over the direction of the USAC Championship Series. In particular, he saw USAC's 21-member board as a major obstacle in growing the sport. It is a lot of people. That's a, Yeah, it's a big board. But maybe not. Like, if you look at NFL, I'm sure all the owners are on the board. Yeah. Mm. Right. So maybe it's just major owners of teams. But there could be a conflict of interest because, like, these people are trying to protect their interests as well, you know. Yeah, that is the thing that's interesting about, like, sanctioning bodies and promoters. Like, the sanctioning bodies are there to, like, implement the rules, you know, sell tickets, and then also sell, you know, race packages to promoters who then go and they make their own money. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, however that works. But, yeah, there's always, a, I feel like, in racing, always been a conflict of interest between sanctioning bodies and, you know, drivers and that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the people in... In any sanctioning body should not be people involved in it in a business capacity, I guess, or compete in it, at least. Yeah, like, I think at its core, the sanctioning body's purpose is to protect the drivers, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But like, also, who has more insight than the teams? Yeah, for sure. But the teams are also, like, it's a business to them. They want to sell. They want to win champion. And I don't know, you know, it's obviously evolved, the money in it back then, although it did seem like it was... 750 grand of you know, yeah. 40s money or 20s. It's always a balance between driver safety and entertainment. So. Yeah. yeah. And well, regardless of any conflict of interest, there are a few things that team owners of all stripes agreed on. They felt that USAC management was providing them with small purses, low attendance, poor promotion, and virtually no television coverage for events outside of Indianapolis. Then, just as dissent was cresting, a huge power vacuum appeared at the top of USAC. First, in late 1977, Holman died suddenly of an aneurysm. Yeesh. Four months later, eight USAC executives were tragically killed in a plane crash on their way back to Indianapolis from a race in Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, that's such a short flight. Yeah. Which they could have vacuumed out that aneurysm, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I hate even thinking about aneurysms. Like I feel like I'm going to have an aneurysm just thinking about it. They could just happen. Ugh, a power stop. vacuum appeared. That's a great line. Who yeah. wrote that? Is it Greg? Greg, good line, buddy. Shout out to our writer, Greg Nix, who's having a baby with his wife and just bought a house. Dude, Greg, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Greg is just hitting it on all fronts. <laughs> I know, right? Baby, wife, house. What can't this guy do? Yeah. He's got a huge power vacuum, I'm sure, in his house. Yeah, yeah. he's probably got one of them... Fancy Dysons. <laughs> He's probably got the Dyson system in the walls. You ever seen those vacuum systems? Will Whoa. you throw your dirty clothes in the wall? No, that's cool, Obviously, though. No, that's sick. I fill my dirty clothes <laughs> under the bed. Yeah. <laughs> a house, huh? Wow. Yeah, just a little bit of context. He's a freelance writer. Yeah. We're full time. We can't, <laughs> none of us own houses. Jerry does. Mm -hmm. But he's, but that's because Jerry had a, he was, he was working <laughs> insane on, insane job. <laughs> he was working on stem cells before this, yeah. so. 
Yeah. He was making the world a better place. Or so he says. I was trying to, okay? And the fat cats over at the corporate biotech thought, never mind. (laughs) 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 I'm not going to get into it, but yeah. I was trying, Nolan. I was really trying hard. As Yusak tried to sort through the literal and figurative wreckage, Dan Gurney was working on what became known as the White Paper, a blueprint for a team-run organization that would develop the regulations to govern racing. Hmm. He called the proposed organization Championship Auto Racing Teams. Hmm. C-A-R-T. Yeah. Mm -hmm. CART. Man, Gurney really stepped in there, took an opportunity of uh, demise and something, Mm -hmm. you know. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm interested to see what comes from this. Okay, we already got a skeptic in our midst. <laughs> in our midst. Gurney took his inspiration from the improvements Bernie Ecclestone had made around the same time in Formula One. However, <laughs> unlike Bernie Ecclestone, Dan Gurney was not later arrested on $475 million fraud charges at the age of 91. Damn, <laughs> Bernie. He was shady. I mean, there are a lot of Bernies that are shady. Yeah. Bernie Madoff, Bernie yeah. Eccleson, Bernie Mac. Don't you, no, <laughs> no, you son dude. of a. Do not besmirch the name of Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac's my favorite comedian of all time. Yeah. Much, dude. You he's ever my see that one. old Def Jam stand up set? I scared of you, motherfuckers. Yeah, and then he dances and he's got like this Bill Cosby sweater on. It's the funniest. I scared of you. I was watching Transformers the other day for some reason, and Bernie Mac is in the first oh, one. Yeah. He's the car dealer. I got to watch dude, that. He's so. He's so good. I Rest love Bernie Mac. R.I.P. Also, um, I know who you were thinking. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to get political, Nolan. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> I'm trying to think of another Bernie. <laughs> that would be a funny tag on that. But I can't. The American people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. That has nothing to Three do with- trillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the American people need to know. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) let me hear your bernie uh now let me be clear (laughs) 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 hey at least you guys recognize that was great that was great when you do burning you you have to just let your jaw go loose yeah and you do a little bit of lisp and you do a little spit spit a little spit when you talk Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) mm-hmm We're master impressionist here. (laughs) Anyway, Gurney essentially called for an advocacy group that represented team interests and helped promote USAC's national championship. He also hoped the group could help negotiate television rights, sponsorship agreements, Mm. and race purses. See, that's all very prudent. Yes. Very good. Yeah, yeah. In November of 1978. November. In November of 1978, Gurney and fellow team team owners Roger Penske and Pat Patrick presented this proposal to the very same USAC board that they thought were going to do a horrible job. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it was rejected. Pat Patrick? Isn't Pat short for Patrick? Yeah. Patrick Patrick? Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is... Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, you should not hold any politicians um, on any sort of pedestal. That's they right. will inevitably let you down mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because of either who they are or the system that they must act in. So in 1979, 
<laughs> Gurney, Penske, and Patrick and three other team owners officially broke away from USAC to found CART not only as an advocacy group, but as its own racing circuit. Well, that's like a weird way to put, like a weird term. Yeah. Circuit. Racing authority. Like, uh, it's its own series, basically. But yeah, it's series. Not as an advocacy group, but as its own racing series. This was the beginning of the most popular and recent contemporary use of the term champ car, since it was the name given by the governing body of CART. What? 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 Well, I think this is where we should mention to the the listener that this is one of the most confusing stories in motorsport here because of this terminology. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if we do get anything wrong, we're not the first ones to get it wrong. Yeah. But also you can email at us. Or send a letter via balloon. <laughs> yeah. The first kart race was held March 11th, 1979. USAC was not pleased. Mm-mm. The organization responded by announcing that each of the breakaway group's entries for the Indianapolis 500 had been rejected because they were, quote, not in good standing with USAC. That's their right. It was a bold move since it affected 19 cars, including entries driven by Al Unzer, Bobby Unzer, Johnny Rutherford, and Gordon Johncock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not Gordon Johncock. Oh, Gordon. Those are two names for penises. <laughs> <laughs> Who together had won eight of the last 11 Indy 500 races. Dang, that Johncock. That Johncock. Pretty good, man. Doing. The cart owners went to court where USAC was forced to hold an additional qualification round on the day before the race for the rejected six, as they were called. Whoa. They sued USAC, and USAC had to hold a, a, another round of qualifications for the USAC teams that they had banned from the track. Gotcha. Okay. Peace was only temporary. In total, 20 races were held in 1979, with 13 as part of the new CART championship. For the 1980 season, the new president of the Brickyard, John Cooper, tried bringing USAC and CART together to jointly sanction a series called the Championship Racing League. The agreement lasted for four races before falling apart. Wow. CART proved to be the more successful organization of the two. Uh-oh. Well, yeah, I mean, you got, like, all those big guys. You got Gurney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you got, got the OGs. You got, you got the Hart. Yeah. John Cock. Gordon John Bobby. Cock. Bobby. Gordon John Cock. Unser. Hey, uh, nice to meet you, man. Jo- uh, Gordon John Cock. Yeah. I'll let you do the work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go. You're out of cart. Okay, go back to USAC. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly, the USAC championship trail of other races was displaced by the cart series. By the end of 1981, the only USAC-sanctioned asphalt championship race was the Indianapolis 500. Everything else was cart. Wow. From there, CART used that leverage to effectively seize control of Indy, even though technically USAC remained the sanctioning body for the 500. Wow. Dang, that's messed up, dude. Through the 1980s and into the mid-1990s, CART racing was the most popular auto racing series in the country behind star drivers like the Unzers, the Andrettis, and Bobby Rahal. Ironically, it was during this era that fans began referring to the cars as Indy cars, despite the strife between Indianapolis and CART, in part because the American Open Wheel Championship had been officially renamed 
The Cart PPG Indie Car World Series. Oh my God. Yeah. Or C A R T P P G I C W S. Okay, so before we were talking about cart series and how the cars were colloquially known as champ cars, racing in IndyCar, even though champ cars were what USAC drove before mm-hmm. cart was around. And now the cart series is IndyCar. And they're driving champ cars, but people call them indie cars. It's all just, you know, nomenclature at this point. People switching around names. We're just swimming in an open nomenclature right now. Mm-hmm. An open nomenclature. Open nomenclature. Open nomenclature. I'm in an open nomenclature relationship. Cart <laughs> <laughs> soon tried to emulate the overseas popularity of Formula One, adding an emphasis on road courses and street circuits in addition to oval tracks. Smart. Mm-hmm. No, cart. God. The different courses were initially popular, but also called for a new kind of driver. Americans who had built their skills on the paved oval tracks were pushed out by Europeans, South Americans, and Australians who'd been trained from childhood as road racers. Okay. This not only caused some American fans to tune out, but it was especially upsetting to new motor speedway president Tony George. George was the grandson of Tony Hallman and grew up in the tradition of Indy, and even spent time in the pit crew of the family friend, A.J. Foyt. He assumed control of the family business at age 30, as was the family's tradition, hoping to return champ cars to their roots. You know, when you turn 30, your 30s is like your 20s, but with money, right? That's what they say. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Aren't you 30 now? I'll be 30 in March. Heck yeah. And then I'll, I will assume control of the... Of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. <laughs> I thought you were going to say your dad's machining business. No, he retired. He, he sold all that crap. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's he doing in his retirement, Scott? He's working on that Bonneville car that oh, yeah. by the time this comes out, will I be driving there? I mean, I'm going out next week. Uh, August 4th is when we'll get there. Yeah. It might be the last time ever for Bonneville. Maybe. Why? Are they shutting it down? die no i don't know <laughs> no the salt is disappearing the hard yeah. salt layer oh no yeah it's down to a quarter of the size it was oh like thickness no the actual area that you can drive oh gotcha george took particular issue with the lack of american drivers in addition to importing road racers cart teams had adopted the european tradition of pay drivers quote buying rides aka selecting drivers who bring lucrative sponsorships and personal wealth with them. Your Latifis, your Strolls. <laughs> this drove away young American talent like Indiana-grown Jeff Gordon, who turned to NASCAR after he and his stepfather had begged cart teams for a spot. Interesting. What I if didn't that, know that happened? I mean... OJG. Yeah. He was... Could have been a... Could have been a cart guy. Could have been. Indy car guy, I guess. I think he probably would have been less well-known yeah certainly there's a different universe where jeff gordon goes on to do cart and he's sponsored by borax <laughs> and he drives the brown brown borax car yeah, yeah they call it the the, the bubbler <laughs> yeah at the time nascar was experiencing an explosive growth in popularity as cart moved more towards a european style Stock car racing was threatening to take over Indy's traditional Midwestern U.S. market. Though this concern didn't stop George from opening up the brickyard to NASCAR races, the first of which was won by Jeff Gordon. Wow. 
In an attempt to assuage George's concerns, Cart rebranded as the more marketable IndyCar and formed a new board that gave George a non-voting seat. Huh. That sucks. Hey, at least he's involved. Yeah. Not, what does assuage mean? Reassure almost. Okay. Okay, gotcha. But when another up-and-coming Indiana driver, Tony Stewart, couldn't get a spot on a cart team, George decided enough was enough. Enough is enough. In 1994, George announced plans for a new series sanctioned by USAC called the Indy Racing League, or IRL, with the Indy 500 as its centerpiece. Cart has now turned into IndyCar, but now we have USAC. Well, Cart is now the Cart PPG IndyCar World Series. Yes. And now this guy who George owns the Brickyard, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's like, this is the place where all these cars are supposed to go. I'm the heart of this, and I can't get any of my Indiana boys yeah. in this series because yeah. this is a pay-to-play kind of spot. So you know what? I'm going grassroots. And I'm going to call my shit Indy, too. Yep. I'm going to call it Indy Racing League. Yes. <laughs> Supported by old-timers like Foyt, George intended to again make Indy the showplace for American driving talent that was migrating to stock cars. He meant to accomplish this by lowering costs so that teams could afford to hire drivers who brought only their sheer ability. Yeah, talent. Money talks, talent walks. <laughs> talent walks, money walks, talent talks. That's right. Nicholas is shaking his head, so I think that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 among uh yeah among george's supporters were bill france of nascar who wanted to quelch whispers of a breakaway league from his own drivers a la carte france and new nascar president john cooper the same guy who used to run the brickyard indirectly helped tony george fund his new league through the highly successful brickyard 400 nascar race but many others didn't take george's announcement seriously assuming that it was a tool to bargain with cart George proved he was extremely serious when he announced what became known as the 25-8 rule. The top 25 drivers in the Indy Racing League's first season would be guaranteed a spot in the 1996 Indy 500, leaving only eight spots for open qualification. This was a highly controversial break from Indy tradition, which always left all 33 starting spots open for the fastest cars, full stop. George was attempting to force kart teams to race in his new series if they wanted a guaranteed spot at Indy. Instead, the kart owners decided to boycott Indy entirely and create their own rival showcase event on the same day, the US 500 at Michigan International Speedway. They billed it as the stars and cars of Indy, while the Indy 500 itself featured lots of tradition but mostly rookie and no-name drivers. Imagine if there's another football game happening at the same time as a Super Bowl called the Ultra Bowl featuring Tom Brady and other good football players that I should name, but I don't because I don't know football players right now. That's a good one, though. Tom yeah. Brady's a good one. Yes. Yeah, this happens a lot. This happened in Supercross back in the 90s. When you have these splits, the, the go-to move is like, hey, we're going to race a different event on the same day as yours. Yeah and try to split that market share yeah. and may the best man win. And it never ends well. Yeah, like we don't have the NWO around anymore. Yeah, or the CCW, is that? Yeah, 
That yeah. was like the hardcore one with CCW the CCW was intense. Yeah. NWO was cool as hell, though. Is CCW the one where they'd hit each other with like bats covered in yeah. barbed wire? wire and stuff? Yeah. Not sustainable. Was Sting in CCW or no. he NWO? He was NWO. Okay. Yeah. CCW was like if you just had a bunch of mankinds. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It felt like dangerous watching even like the previews mm -hmm. at my house i was like oh is my mom gonna walk in i remember my <laughs> buddy had a wrestling magazine in elementary school that he brought we were like reading on the bus and it had like all these guys with blood and like yeah and, and i was like oh dude this magazine's intense man like you're gonna get in trouble and someone ratted on him and the <sighs> principal was like hey let me check your backpack oh my god and looked at it and he was like all right, hey, don't bring this out anymore, but this is pretty cool. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, all these competing series. How the hell is a Sports Brains fan supposed to make sense of this stuff? In the end, neither race was a success. Indy was marred not only by a lack of name brand drivers, but by the death of veteran racer and pole sitter Scott Brayton during practice. Flag pole sitter. Meanwhile, a 12-car pileup on the starting line in Michigan forced Cart to immediately red flag the race and essentially start over. It was arguably the most disappointing weekend in the history of IndyCars. Can I go back real quick? I have a question about this. Sure. NASCAR almost had a split itself. I know we talked about it way up here, but I forgot to ask you. I think that's something we should maybe explore, too. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Because it seems like they've never had this type of thing, but potentially, I wonder what they did to squash it. I don't know. Be interesting to look at. Sorry. But Bill French showed up at all the team owners' house with like a <laughs> twelve gauge and was like, "Here's okay. what we're gonna do, fellas." Yeah, here what we're yeah. <laughs> you can go nicely, or we could do this the hard way. <laughs> the divide continued to grow over the next several months as a lawsuit forced Cart to vacate the IndyCar name. Oh, my God. Here we go again. Cart began officially promoting its vehicles and series as Champ Car rather than IndyCar. <laughs> That's kind of crazy, though, because Cart was like, hey, we're going to call it the IndyCar or the PPG, whatever, Indy World Series. But the guy who owns the Indianapolis 500 is like, hey, I have the IP to Indy. Yeah. You can't use that. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. For the 1997 IRL season, Tony George announced a new car and engine package that made Indy formulas completely incompatible with CART, <laughs> forcing team owners to choose one or the other, <laughs> further complicating the situation. The IndyCar fan base, already confused as to who was racing in which league, were now becoming bitterly polarized, and fatefully, many of them decided to turn to NASCAR instead of either open wheel series Dude, nascar is just reaping the benefits hey guys it's real easy over here it's nascar <laughs> yeah i bet bill france is like sitting in the wings watching this and going hmm okay i can i could probably scrape Let me up put my finger on the scale a little bit bill, here. why yeah. don't, why do you keep making that noise oh yeah you all right yeah all right. i'm fine <laughs> what's the problem <laughs> oh it's just how you talk okay oh this is normal <laughs> The sport of IndyCar hasn't really ever recovered from the late 90s split between CART and the IRL, in real life racing league. <laughs> it struggled with mishap after mishap, some of which have been entirely self-created and some of which were just tragic accidents. The 1997 Indy 500 was marred by an unclear ending 
caused by a caution flag, which eventually led to the end of the USAC's 42-year reign as the race's sanctioning body. In July of 1998, three spectators were killed by flying debris from a wreck at a cart race in Michigan. Several months later, a similar incident killed three more bystanders at an IRL race in Charlotte. Wow. Both leagues faced serious image problems regarding fan safety. It didn't help when two drivers were killed during CART's 1999 season. Wow. Right before it. They didn't even get to experience Y2K. <laughs> By the early 2000s, both leagues were hemorrhaging money. Tony George propped up the IRL using his Clabber Girl family fortune. <laughs> Whoa, that money runs deep. But CART now had to answer to stockholders thanks to a decision by the league owners to go public in 1998. And the IRL had one thing in American racing guaranteed to make money, the Indy 500. In 2002, George forced ABC slash ESPN to sign an exclusive deal with the IRL if they wanted to air the 500. Meanwhile, CART was bumped to cable coverage on the Speed Channel and forced to buy airtime on CBS to maintain a broadcast presence. Dude, you got to get a network deal if you want your motorsport to be mainstream. Yeah. You know? Have to. You can't really survive on, like, you know, Speed Channel. I mean, I know, like, now there's a lot of sprint car coverage and smaller racing series on, like, MAV TV. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. What's MAV TV? Yeah, it's just like a cable network, like Speed. They do, um, used to be, same thing's happening with motocross. They were yeah. on MAV, they're not on MAV, but it's like... It's vi- it doesn't help the popularity at all no. if it's not on a major network. Yeah, it's got it's you got to be able to watch two broke girls immediately after <laughs> yeah the race. You know what I would think, especially like with a new generation going to YouTube and all of like mm-hmm. have a Hulu live mm-hmm. coverage of mm-hmm. it or something. You know, yeah. like eventually that's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine you're the Hulu's racing series and they pump that on the main screen put it in front of an audience that like never like you know some some zoomer isn't gonna like pay five bucks a month for your streaming app if they've never seen your your race but if you throw it up on amazon prime like the nfl does right and yeah potentially like you know get some stray eyes and be like oh that's how i watch most nfl games is on through prime now like yeah yeah well that's like f1 was talking to netflix for a while they're trying mm-hmm. to like outbid espn mm-hmm. for live races i think that would have been a great move potentially yeah I f- yeah because like the amount of people that have netflix accounts versus mm-hmm. the amount of people that have espn accounts yeah mm-hmm. i pay for f1 tv so i'd be kind of pissed if i had to pay for netflix again because i canceled mine but yeah i mean if that if if that was the only way to watch live races i i would do it yeah Cart's downturn in fortunes caused team owners and drivers to defect back to the guaranteed paychecks furnished by the IRL. Manufacturers like Toyota and Honda also bailed on commitments to Cart. After the 2003 season, Cart declared bankruptcy. The circuit was briefly reorganized and run under the name Bridgestone Presents the Champ Car World Series powered by Ford, <laughs> which we got two title sponsors. <laughs> yeah, powered by Ford. That's Nolan right there. Oh, yeah. Nevertheless, Champ Car had no chance of competing with a strengthened Indy Racing League. In 2008, the IRL bought Champ Car's remaining assets, like the Long Beach Grand Prix, and officially stamped out the competition. The new reunified American circuit was officially known as IndyCar. Now it's back. A huge part of this is because the IRL 
had the Indy 500. That's yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a big race that it was enough to it was like, enough to carry it through. I mean, it was hard in the short term. I imagine in like the 80s and the 90s, but like uh-huh. they just stuck with it. Yeah, and that was enough. Dude, tradition is so important to people. Yeah, as we explained at the beginning of this episode, is like that was one of the birthplaces of like American motorsport. Uh huh. And Cart tried to strong arm them by running the race while USAC still was the sanctioning body and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. It worked out. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. Cart was really pushing for more balloon races at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Tony George technically won his war with Cart, but he didn't reign for very long. George was ousted as CEO of Indianapolis Motor Speedway in July 2009, just a year after they bought out Champ Car. It wasn't a power play by drivers or team owners, but by his three sisters who were tired of him pouring family money into the IRL. And in 2020, the Holman family sold IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to Cart co-founder... <laughs> Roger Penske. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, shit. I spoke too soon. Wow. <laughs> wow. So would that technically, his sisters would be the Clabber girls? Yeah. They were the Clabber girls. <laughs> Clabber girls. Wow, that's so crazy, dude. What a turn of events. That yeah. is, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Not awesome like I, I mean, whatever, but like awesome and like just like a, a turn story, a story. Yeah. You know? Wonder how wow. much the Indianapolis Motor Speedway cost. What does in, that mean? In two thousand well, he bought the he bought the racetrack. Oh. He bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. My That's guess so is two hundred million. That's probably a pretty good guess. I would say a billion dollars. I would say five hundred million. Two fifty to three hundred million. Just for the track? Yeah. For the track. A little less than F one. Okay. <laughs> um Ultimately, none of these ordeals left the sport of racing as a whole much worse for wear. Perhaps American open wheels suffered, but fan interest just shifted elsewhere. NASCAR has become the home of American racing stars. F1 has gained a bigger foothold in the States. Alternate events like Formula Drift can carve out a nice little niche. That being said, IndyCar, you hardcore IndyCar fans out there, I know you're listening. Y'all are some dedicated people. Mm Mm-hmm. Co-host of uh, DRS, Donut Racing Show, Elizabeth Blackstock, huge IndyCar fan. Yeah, she's cool. Listen to that podcast. The split is one in a long line of behind-the-scenes racing dramas. But if we're being honest, rules disagreements and shady business dealings and boardroom backstabbings can be the most interesting stuff about racing. You can either look at it as a bunch of rich guys mucking up the sport or as part of the fun. As long as people love cars, there will be racing. And as long as there's racing... There will be racing drama. So I don't know how to feel Juicy. about this whole story. It feels like a bunch of rich guys battling. Mucking. Mucking, mucking around. Mucking up. No, I think that's, I love that. That was a great story. Yeah. Wow. Really cool. I Hopefully learned a we lot. Hopefully uh, yeah. I didn't know a lot about this. Me neither. I think it's kind of cool. I do think, I would love for IndyCar to get more popular. Because mm-hmm. I think the racing is really, like, it's kind of funny. My dad, who is not an IndyCar guy, mm-hmm. he'd just be like, hey, did you watch the 500? Every year. 500. He'll watch the Great 500. Event. Yeah. You know? And it's just like. We got to go. Yeah, we got to go. But How we, long does the 500 race last now? Probably two and a half hours, three hours. 500 laps. Yeah. I mean, just like, because the original intent was to do it all within uh, the span of the sun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it takes several hours. It's not like two hours. It's like, it's, so? I think it's like 
four, three to four hours long, I want to say. Yeah. Three hours, maybe. They're going fast. I mean, they're going like 200 miles an hour. I hope least. they're going fast. They're going How fast. far is that track? Three miles, three and a half mile course? Oh, I don't know. I should know that. It's a long course, though. Yeah. It takes a long time, but um, what a stupid thing to say. It's a long course. It takes a long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's a great race. Um, we got to go. Uh, yeah, I mean, if IndyCar became more popular here, the racing is certainly closer than it is in F1. You really don't know who's going to win on any given weekend. And uh, I, um, and funny enough, they talked about Gordon wanting to start in cart. I watched the last IndyCar race I watched was because Jimmy Johnson, Jimmy Johnson was running, and I was like, "Oh, I'd like to yeah. see," and he did pretty good. You got Jimmy Johnson, you got Roman Grosjean from Formula oh, One. Yeah. He's yep. racing IndyCar now. They don't um, like him though. They don't who, like Grosjean. Why? Who, who doesn't? doesn't? I've read a lot of articles about people being like he's a dirty racer. Whatever, what? dude. They're bitches. Yeah. Um, Elbows out, Swiss man. <laughs> he's he's French, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> same same. Nolan. But yeah, I mean, you got a lot of like former. You got a lot of former F one drivers who like weren't necessarily super good mm -hmm. in F one, mm -hmm. but they come over here. They do pretty well. Uh, you got American drivers, obviously, but you got yeah drivers from all over the world. Um, do they do road courses in Indy? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they do the Long Beach. Uh, Romain Grosjean, born in Geneva, Switzerland. Mother. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, that's embarrassing. That is. Because you were very confident yeah. about him being French. Well, he raced for France. That was his thing. He probably has dual citizenship or something. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, Europe, we have <laughs> some fan mail from jolly old England. Good morning from Mario England. I'm a big fan of Pascas, yeah? Really got into it during the pandemic, which led me to your YouTube channel, which is a great way to while away time while drinking tea. Weird phrasing, mate. Worrying about my bad teeth and while on patrol as a British bobby. Okay, do I need to read that again? I don't even know what the fuck this guy's saying. <laughs> okay, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, I really enjoy your F1-related stuff, even if I get annoyed when you try to pronounce Elaine or Mansell. <laughs> I'm sure I nailed those. You nailed them, dude. My idea for a story is that of the Hill family in F1. Dashing Graham Hill, a two-time F1 champion, after working his way up from being a mechanic. Then, sadly, dying in a plane crash, which led to his family losing their fortune and son Damon having to work as a motorcycle courier. Damon started car racing when he was 24 years old, but still went on to be an F1 champ by 36. Personally, I think it would make a great episode. Keep up the good work, your chap and lovely friend, Benny Boy. <laughs> Thanks, oh, thank Benny. You, ben. That's a great. That sounds really wow. cool. That's wild. Yeah. I definitely like to hear that, perhaps in that whole accent the whole time. All right, thank you very much for listening to this show. That was a fun one. If you want to hear more racing stories, particularly of the F1 variety, we have a new Formula One podcast called Donut Racing Show. It's hosted by me and my two friends. We got Elizabeth Blackstock and Alanis King. Uh, you might have heard of them. They're writing a book about rich energy and Haas F1 right now. It's coming out soon. Get your pre-orders in. But you can listen to our show every Wednesday after a race weekend. I think by the time this episode of Past Gas comes out, we'll be on summer break. Follow Jeremiah at Jeremiah Burton. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Thank you very much for listening. Tell your friends. Write a review if you'd like. See you next time.